When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Ruben Neuenheis, a new host on the Critical Theory channel. Today, I am excited to be here with Todd McGowan. Todd is a professor of film studies at the University of Vermont. He is one of the co-editors of the Diaresis series, along with Slavoj Žižek and Adrian Johnston at Northwestern University Press. He is also co-host of the Why Theory podcast, which brings continental philosophy and psychoanalytic theory together to examine cultural phenomena. He has also been on New Books Network before for his books, Capitalism and Desire and Emancipation After Hegel. Thanks so much for coming back on the show, Todd. Oh, Ruben, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Great. Yeah, well, let's jump right in. Um, My first question I wanted to ask is, what made you want to write this book and who are you writing it for? So I felt like the... 20th century. I, I was very dissatisfied with the critique. I've always been dissatisfied with the critique of universality. And part of what this book emerged out of was working on a book on Hegel. And Hegel's very insistent on the necessity of universality and on the way in which we're talking and acting universally, even when we don't think we are. And so part of part of that was part of the inspiration for me writing it. And I was really writing it to all the people that I had to read when I was coming up in graduate school, like, uh, you know, usual suspects, Jacques Derrida, Michel Foucault, uh, Gilles Deleuze, like this whole line of thinkers who basically made it their project to even Theodore Adorno, Herbert Marcuse, to, to be suspicious of universality. And my feeling was, that without universality, there couldn't be a leftist project. So that I wanted to to defend universality, and then to and then I th- I mean, one of the reasons why I thought I had something to say was I wanted to redefine it in a certain way, and th- and that was to me really important. And then I wanted to think the opposition between uh, conservatism and emancipation, or right and left, at, along the lines of the opposition between the particular and the universal, which I I. As far as I can tell, that's not a thing that people usually think, right? Like sometimes the right is identified with imposing universality and the left is identified with defending the particular. So I, that, those are all the things that made me think, oh, there's the way things are being thought I, I'm, I, I'm a little bit suspicious of and I want to try to counter that, that tide. So that's what I was, that's what I was trying to do. Right. Okay. So anyone who is interested in 
universality or I guess just the, the way that political struggle is um, thought about is who you're kind of targeting in, in mm-hmm. this. Right. And one of the other things that really motivated me was this constant charge leveled by the right of you're practicing identity politics to the left. And and what, what seemed to me was, well, no, it's actually identity politics is typically a right wing strategy. And what gets where the left gets accused of practicing identity politics, it's really articulating a universalist position, even if that's not if that's not explicit, if it's only implicit. And so I wanted to make that explicit and to, in a certain way, defend these different movements from the charge of identity politics, especially Black Lives Matter. This, I mean, it emer- this, there's a section on Black Lives Matter and the book emerged, you know, before, I wrote it before the the, the 2020 huge explosion in the, in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder. But uh, I still would like Trayvon Martin, that, that whole, that beginning of that movement around 2015, that was when I started to think about the book in, in those terms and, and thinking about that movement as a universalist one. Right. Yeah. Well, I want to start off with a broad question of some crucial concepts the book discusses and develops. Um, I mean, two of them are right in the title, universality and identity politics, but I think another two are particularity and identity. So could you give a quick snapshot overview of each of these before we get into some more specifics? Yeah. So for me, one of the things that I, so typically the universal is thought of as this general concept that then gets imposed on discrete individuals and then defines them. And I wanted to counter that. I wanted to say, no, actually universality, and and I'm indebted to Hegel's largely to come up with this, but I don't know, different types of different other thinkers, psychoanalysis, I think. Uh, For me, universality is what's missing, what's absent within a social order. So, or within... Uh, I don't know, even the structure of being. So for me, the the notion of a, of, of a constitutive absence is what universal is. And that absence uh, is what holds the structure to our structure of society, our structure of language together. And it's also what gives us whatever identity we have. So for me, the priority is always on universality over identity, and then identity comes afterward. And it's it's universality that then defines the possibilities for identity, that every identity takes its bearings from what that universal is, and identity is always defined through universality. And so, the, again, the, and the, the other terms, the particular, so the particular likewise is that which gets its bear it's the it's the isolated individual that gets its bearings from the universal structure and it can't exist with i mean for me it's really important that the particular can't exist without that universal structure right so there's no such thing for me as a particular without a universal and the particular is always you might say that the universal is what emerges through the particular's failure to realize itself or that the the failure of the particular is the universal. And that's how, that's how particularity and universal relate to each other through this shared point of failure. So I I think that for me, that's how all those terms come together. And then I also find that particularity itself is just blank. And so one of the things that I think about in the book is how identity comes to give a, to fill 
up the emptiness of particularity. So if you just, particularity in itself doesn't give you anything, but identity gives you a sense that this particularity really means something. Like I could have a particular identity as a German in 1935. And I mean, it's not an innocent example. Uh, and, and I, and, and, and the notion of, let's say, Aryan identity then fills out that particularity and makes me feel like my particularity isn't just empty, but it really is. There's something to it. There's something substantial to it. And so identity really is for me, the illusion of a substantialness to particularity. So it fills it out. It gives it a sense of a, uh, you might say that per, that particularity is the empty form and then identity is the content that fills out that form for me. Right. And then identity politics is um, kind of building off of identity. Right. right. Identity politics is the attempt to structure the political struggle through the assertion of identity. And one of the things that I think is really important about identity politics is that it, it absolutely requires an enemy. So in order to define my identity, I have to have this identity that I'm defining it against. Otherwise, it's I, I don't have it. There's no there's no substance to it or there's no sense of a content to it. Uh, so that's for me. One of the things that I'm chronicling in the book is why identity politics has to be right wing politics. And it's because it requires the enemy in the way that universality doesn't like universality. If it just by the nature of the structure, it's universal. It doesn't it can't have an enemy. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, this kind of segues into my next question. Um, so in the book, you write, quote, the most appropriate way to understand the terms right and left is by associating them with particularity and universality, respectively. If one doesn't take this step and instead sees the opposition as one involving competing tribes, then one implicitly gives the right the upper hand, end quote. How does this framing of the struggle differ from more mainstream ways of framing the left-right divide? And what do we gain from this shift? Yeah, I think it differs totally. I was just reading an article in that leftist newspaper, the New York Times. And uh, I, I was joking. <laughs> According to the right, that's the leftist newspaper. But I don't think it is. Uh, uh, and and the, just today. And the claim was, the, the U.S. is dividing even more into this just competing tribes of right and left, right? And I think the problem with that is that it, it immediately structures a, a symmetry between the two sides as if, like, oh, one side has certain concerns, the other side has opposing concerns, and that's why they're at odds with each other. But I don't, I just don't think that's the case. Like, I think if you really see the underlying, and now, I mean, this is not to say that uh, what passes for right and left in the U.S. is what I would call right and left. I think sometimes that, I mean, liberalism in the U.S. is not what I would call left, but be that as it may, I think that the the, the, the opposition between left and right, if you don't think about it in terms of the this competition or the struggle, not competition, struggle between universality and particularity, then I think what you miss is that you miss the way that, that uh, it's it's an asymmetrical struggle that that on the one side that there's a sense of uh, everyone can be part of it, and then on the other side there's a sense of we need an enemy, we need someone to define ourselves against. Whether and whether it doesn't matter what that enemy is, the enemy could be you know 
China. It could be all non-Aryans. It could be uh, immigrants. Can, like all those things, it can be Ukraine, right? It can be a lot of things. And I think it doesn't matter what the enemy is, uh, but there has to be an enemy. And so I think it, that's why there ha- I think there's a, understanding it in terms of that asymmetry of universality and particularity, I think really uh, has a, it, to me, it clarifies what's at stake in the struggle between left and right or between conservatism and emancipation. Right. Yeah. Well, these next several questions are centered on universality. One of the problems for universality you point out is that people often conceive of it as a totality of all particulars. For example, a common intuition some people might have is that it's more universal to try to include everyone's preferred pronoun. So instead of only he, she, then it's he, she, they, but then it needs to become he, she, they, z, and so on trying to encapsulate every particular. Can you explain for us what problems you see with this common misconception of universality? Yeah, that's a great question. So a couple things. First of all, so this is to me liberalism, right? The liberal dream of total inclusion, total mutual recognition. And the number one problem is the thing that was implicit in what you said, you, you recognize that that you never can include enough, right? Like the moment you make one more inclusion, someone else is like, wait a minute, you didn't include, I'm not really included in that. So you have to add me too. And so this, this, there's a constant sense of addition, 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 never fully getting to the end point. And so I think to me, there's an interesting opposition between universality and the all, like the all is you add a bunch of particulars together, hoping to get to the all and you never get there. Whereas universality is instead the failure that defines the whole, the contradiction that defines the whole. And you do get there because it is the failure within every single particular, right? So there's no, it's not like you're trying to always arrive at the universal and never getting there. No, you're, you, you always are there because it's the thing that undermines your own particularity from within. So that's, to me, it's a really important opposition and really, sorry, opposition, really important contrast, I think, because universality uh, allows us to see the way in which we're, we're not, moving forward to something, but we've already attained it. And that to me is really, that's where, like part of what um, I think is an important project for the left is seeing the way in which there already is a collective, that's already collective formed, already a collective here, and that it needs to be understood and recognized as such. And and that's that's one of the things that I was trying to do in this book. Right. Well, and in contrast to total belonging or total inclusion or the all, you talk so much about non-belonging. Could you unpack what you mean by non-belonging and how it relates to universality? Yeah. So I I mean two things by this and they're related. So on the one hand, every social structure has figures of non-belonging that that are used to constitute belonging. Like just to come back to my, I'll take a I'll choose a different example. So like in, in contemporary Europe, the figure of non-belonging is the immigrant, right? And so that figure of non-belonging allows people who aren't immigrants to feel like they belong. But 
in fact, there's no, no one really belongs because belonging always requires that figure of non-belonging in order to feel like you belong. So you're really, your belonging ends up ironically being dependent upon those who don't belong. So, so it's a, it's a reverse thing where you're, you end up, you think you're in the privileged position because you belong, but you're actually dependent upon the figures of non-belonging. It's a little like, I think, actually, it's kind of exactly like Hegel's dialectic of the master and the servant, right? Like the master thinks that its position is, is the one of mastery, obviously, and it ends up that this mastery is dependent upon the activity of the servant. I think it's the same thing with non-belonging and belonging. So in that sense, I think non-belonging is universal, even though there are particular figures associated with it. It nonetheless is true of everyone. It's just, it gets, it gets uh, projected onto certain particular figures so as to hide the universality of non-belonging. So I, 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 I keep this idea that, oh, there are these other figures that don't belong. So I can imagine that I belong. What I'm hiding is the fact that no one fully belongs to the society because to fully belong would mean you, there's no failure in your identity, right? Like you're totally like, I'm completely say American or I'm completely white or I'm, and, and in each case, there's a, there's a dependence on what's external to me. And that's why I can't be completely the thing that I think that I am. Right. Um, and one of the other things, I mean, building off of that in your book, what you do is look at some of the ways that non-belonging allows room for universal, such as freedom, equality, or solidarity be, to be discovered. Yeah. Could you give like an example or something of like how, um, I guess someone who maybe doesn't understand non-belonging or like the psychoanalytic tradition it comes from, how does non-belonging allow these universals to be discovered? Right. So the idea, my, so those universals I'm clearly getting from French revolution. Right. And uh, so part of what I am trying to think about in this book is trying to connect, like give a theoretical, a different kind of theoretical grounding to those universals, because the thinkers of the French Revolution and, and those in their in their aftermath, really, either they say these have been granted by some by nature itself or by some divinity or some. So it seems to me like that's inadequate. And so what I wanted to do was to think, well, how could that? How could those be grounded? And 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 so one of the ways that I try to think about that is think about how if there's no if there's all if 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 universality means that there's a a failure within every point of identity or within every social structure that there's a something absent something a point of failure that become that my idea is that that becomes the basis for freedom equality and solidarity for this this reason so if there's no there can be no authority that's substantial that that has that's that's that is has a assured validity to it because of this internal failure of every social structure. So that means that we're free. And then we're equal in that in that same for that same reason, because of the failure, we're all we're all every one of our identities is structured through that failure. Thus we're equal in that failure. And then 
we have solidarity through that failure as well. So I'm, that's what I was trying to think. And that my, my favorite example of this is the Haitian revolution, because the whole, and, and my favorite event of the Haitian revolution is when the French soldiers sent by Napoleon to re-enslave Haiti get confronted by the Haitian soldiers singing the French revolutionary songs, right? And so there, this is detailed by CLR James in the Black Jacobins. And, and I, I think that that event shows the way in which the, there's an opening within or a, a shared failure. Because so it's not that the French have this idea that they've imposed on Haiti. No, they're both partaking in the same. And what the Haitians are singing to the French really isn't it is the French national anthem or La Marseillaise. I'm not sure if it's the national anthem yet, but uh, the revolutionary song. But what they're saying when they're singing that is, do you see like your structure It that we, we share something and what we share isn't anything positive, but a shared failure. So that's that would be my example. And I think that I think theoret again, what I was trying to get at was a way to theorize that the, those three values that are at the heart of this whole revolutionary movement at the end of the 18th century. So that's really what I was going for. Right. Well, one of the things you've already touched on is absence. Um, and I think that's closely re related to non-belonging. Um, in the book, you write, quote, the universal is not a positive whole, but the failure of the whole. The attempt to transform the universal, which is an absence in signification, into a positivity necessarily misses it, end quote. Why is it so important that universality is an absence and that it can never be completely articulated? Yeah, so it's important, I think, because that means that universality can never be imposed as a form of mastery on someone else, right? So it's not like, I have a certain universal, and I think this is how, for instance, the the British Empire conceived of its own universality, that we have certain universal values, we're going to impose them on, say, India, and we're going to enlighten them by imposing certain universal values on them. And so that's a conception of universality that I, wanna to I wanted to totally get away from, because I think that it's... I, I think a lot of people are invested in that idea. And I think that if you conceive universality like that, then there's, then it, then it, then it's just, a, it becomes just a right wing imperial project. And so uh, that's the danger to me. That's the danger of making it into something present rather than sustaining it as something absent that, that it, when you do that, I think the political valence of it flips Totally. I mean, I think there's other examples of this. Like, I think Soviet Union under Stalin, that's the same thing that happens. Like, there's an attempt to make solidarity, let's just choose one, solidarity or equality into something present. And then it all of a sudden, then it becomes something that Stalin imposes through collectivization on the peasants. And it's it's a horror show. So I think that's the danger of trying to conceive of universality as a presence rather than as this structuring absence of the signifying order that then that like that's what unleashes uh, the all the worst kinds of vi uh, imperial authoritarian violence right yeah well in this next question 
I want to look a bit more at the difference between someone on the side of universality versus someone who aims for total inclusivity. Uh, in your book, one of the examples you talk about is the legalization of gay marriage. And just using this topic and assuming one lived in a country where gay marriage was not legal, how would you see the difference between the universalist struggle from the total inclusion struggle? Yeah, that's an interesting one because, uh, you know, I have a good friend of mine, Mari Rudy, said, you're just wrong on this because gay marriage is actually just, it's always an inclusive movement and it's not really what you want it to be. So that that may be right. I mean, it may be the case that the gay marriage movement, you know, you can be for it and still say, well, this isn't really a leftist project, right? Like it's, 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 it's kind of, it's, it's really just a part of this inclusive inclusivity uh, for better or worse. Uh, I, I guess what I, why I didn't think that was, I think that it clearly marriage is an institution. It's a particular institution. It's not a universalist institution. Everyone's not going to be married and, even if they were, it's not, it's not necessarily universal. We can imagine societies without it pretty easily. There were many societies without it. Maybe there will be in the future, probably. Uh, So, so in that sense, it's particular, right? But I, I guess what I, what I, one of the things that I noticed about the gay marriage movement was that it took the side of those who weren't included, those who didn't belong and said, we're going to, we're going to, and I, I liked this slogan a lot, like marriage is gay marriage, right? Like, 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 or gay marriage is marriage. That's it. I, sorry, I reversed it. Gay marriage is marriage. So the idea was, it's not like, uh, that, that short circuit of gay marriage and marriage all of a sudden changes the structure of the partic- of marriage. And so I, that's what I liked about that movement. I thought that it did a, it did a good job of bringing to light the potential, highlighting the non-belonging within what seems like a mainstream, or it is a mainstream institution like marriage. So that's what I liked about it. But I, I'm, you know, that maybe I should have cut that from the book because maybe it's wrong. I don't. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sure. But I. I, I do. And I, and and I, it's interesting because most queer theorists that I know all thought the gay marriage movement was uh, just a bourgeois strug- struggle. Although, ironically, uh, many of them got married. So I don't know. So, so uh, uh, it, yeah, I'm not sure about that. I think it's a good question. And uh, again, what I liked about it was just the way in which it it brought attention to the those who did that position of non-belonging and said, look, let's identify this institution as much as we can with non-belonging. So that's how I think it maybe pushes against this logic of the inclusion and the all. Right. Yeah. Well, I remember at one point in your book, you kind of summed it up in, in saying something along the lines of, um, you want us to not look at non-belonging from the perspective of belonging, but belonging from the perspective of non-belonging. So that's, yeah, um, yeah, that's absolutely, I think that's really, you know, is a, is a, to the extent that just theorizing something is part of a political struggle. That's what I think is really the important thing is to have that shift of perspective, right? So that, so that all 
we see that all belonging is tainted by non-belonging rather than looking out at non-belonging and say, can we bring it in? And I thought the gay marriage movement kind of did that. It forced people who were heterosexually married to say, oh, wait a minute, maybe I don't belong as much as I think I belong. And that's what I liked about it. Yeah, right. Um, well, one of your points that you've already touched on is that no one can possess a universal such as freedom or equality and that doing so it leads to this imposing of the universal um but you point out that um this that precisely because no one can possess it it's the source of the universal's emancipatory quality since there's no arrival at like having the universal does this mean that there's like this never-ending cycle of striving but necessarily missing yeah, so it does seem like this Trotsky permanent revolution. The only thing I would say that's slightly different, and I, I more or less accept that. The only thing I would say slightly different than that is that I think the, here's how I would put it, that the struggle is already the end point, right? Like it's not that, it's not that, oh, we're constantly struggling. It's that you have to recognize the struggle itself as the end point. And I think that's slightly different than the notion of permanent revolution trying to go forward, but to see that you're constantly, you're constant, that the assertion, the struggle for universality is already itself universality. Whereas I think the idea of permanent revolution is you're constantly moving forward to the end point, whatever it is. But I think my idea would be, again, slightly different that, it's the struggle toward that already is that, that you've already got in there when you're engaged in the struggle for, for toward the toward the toward the universal like that is universality and so I really I I'm very uh, taken by that I think that's a, I I really like that idea yeah right um, well this next question it's coming from my perspective of someone not well versed in Hegelian or Lacanian thought um, trying to you know, delve into that more. But um, I mean, throughout the book, some of the recurring universals that you talk about are from the French Revolution, the like freedom, equality, solidarity. Um, but in locating the universal in absence, how do you come up with these universals? Like what prevents other things? I mean, such as, I don't know, like greediness, industriousness, or just any like personal political bias from being considered universals. Uh, I guess like in other words, it seems like the set of things absent from social structures would be far larger than things present. So how are things like freedom, equality, and solidarity chosen? Yeah, that's a great question, right? Like you could, it's, it does seem like you could just choose, like it's arbitrary, right? Like I could have chosen whatever. And how did I get up with, come up with those three? Obviously I came up with those three because they're tied to this certain revolutionary situation. But then is the connection just arbitrary? Here's what I would say. I would say that my point about those three isn't, and I think you're right that there's a lot, there's a ton of things obviously that are absent from a social structure, but they're absent in terms of their content. And so what, I think that freedom, equality, solidarity all have a, a formal relation to this structure of absence, right? So that the point is that they don't they don't emerge as this, oh, freedom's just absent as a content. No, that the point is that there's a structure that has a point of absence within it. And 
as a result of that, we are free, right? So as a result of that formal situation, we are free. So I don't think you could say, let's just take greediness, for example, or greed or uh, whatever, lust, any, any of these good <laughs> deadly sins, right? Like any of them, like, why couldn't they be universal? Sure, they could be, but uh, I don't see, the, I don't think you can say the same thing about their relation to that formal absence, right? Like, I mean, I think you could say, well, we're all universally desiring subjects because there's an absence in the structure. That makes sense to me. And I think that's true. And I think that's related to freedom and equality and solidarity. Um, but I'm not sure that desire is a value. So part of what I was trying to do was think about what values get, how value, certain values can get affirmed. Like, could the value of, say, the commodity be found in this structure of absence, like to take just the value that we all share today as members of capitalist society, right? And I don't think so. Like, I think that like the to, to for the commodity to have a value, I mean, Marx would say it requires the exploitation of labor to create surplus value. But even if Marx is wrong, there has to be some kind of economic structure that creates that, that allows that value to emerge. It's not a it's not a formal uh, property of every social relation. So part of, so that's what I, that's how I would say. Like, I think that to, to think of those particular values, how do they, or universal values, how do they emerge out of that structure as a form, not as a con, not as a content. So it's not that, yeah, anything could be missing as a content, but what does the fact that there is an absence within the structure imply as a form for what kind of values exist in the society. And that's what I think, that's where I think, I don't know how you could find other values that come out of that. But I, I mean, I would listen to someone, obviously, if they thought, oh, wait, there are these other values and, and, and they seem to be more like, I don't know, like justice, right? Like maybe that would be the value but I don't see that. I mean, that seems amorphous. I'm not even sure what justice ever means, but um, it, I, I don't see how that's implied in that structure of absence necessarily. So that would be just a counter example that I think is not there. So. Right. Great. Um, well, moving on, you provide a political reading of Nazism and Stalinism that contrasts with mainstream interpretations of these two ideologies. I found it immensely satisfying for the reason that it locates a commonality between these two seemingly very different horrors in the 20th century. Can you walk us through your basic analysis of Nazism and Stalinism and how it differs from more popular accounts? Yeah, yeah. So one of the things it differs from is Anna, uh, Hannah Arendt's, uh, you know, totalitarianism, Linking, I never use that term. I, I hope I don't use that term. Uh, linking the two together as a, as like they're just both totalitarian projects. So that's one of the things. The other thing is, I think most uh, understandings of them, the one thing that they think, and Arendt, this is true of her as well, that they have in common is that they impose, they both try to squelch the particular. They both try to, they have a universal vision of things and they impose that on every particular within their society, every individual, and the individual has to conform to what the 
what either Nazism or Stalinism is selling, right? And and if you don't conform, you're killed. Or if you don't fit in, you're killed or sent to the camps or the gulag. So I my idea was, well, wait a minute. First of all, I think there, I want to first say there's a big difference between the two, that the thing that they have in common is both represent a retreat from universality. So that's the first thing. But Stalinism begins in a project of universality that goes awry for the reason we talked about earlier. It's trying to make present the universal rather than sustaining it as an absence, right? So that's the so that's where Stalinism, I think, goes awry. And then Nazism, I, I mean, I feel like I, I talk about Nazism too much, but part of the reason is because I find it so fascinating that it got so misinterpreted uh, in the 20th century by even leftists that I otherwise have a lot of esteem for, like Theodore Dorno, who I mentioned before. Uh, and they think that that uh, Nazism is this imposition, again, of the of the totality on the on the isolated individual. And I think instead, Nazism is a particularist philosophy aimed at destroying universality. And it's interesting. So I make a lot out of the fact that the fundamental enemy for Nazism was Judeo-Bolshevism, right? So Judeo-Bolshevism, and, and, and I think it's interesting. So Bolshevism, it's easy that, that to see that that's a universalist project that the Nazis hated. But why would, why would Judaism, or not Judaism for them, why would Jewishness be a universalist project? Well, it's interesting. So especially because they're racist, so aren't, aren't they just addressing Jews as particulars? But it turns out, no, they're not at all, actually. Like the, the Nazi critique of Jewishness, and this is true from Hitler to Goebbels to him, to all of them, Alfred Rosenberg, the great Nazi ideologist, philosopher, uh, they all think that Jews are a non-race. So it's a fascinating thing, right? Like, why would they be a non-race? Well, they're, they're too universal for Nazis. Like that's the, Nazism thinks Judaism Sorry, Jewishness is is a is a non it's a non particular, non race, and so that 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 universality of Jewishness and of Bolshevism is the reason why that's the thing that Nazism is most motivated to attack. So, again, like what I see in both movements is this retreat and critique of universality, not a manifestation of universality. So I I, I guess for me. That was one of the big things that had caused me to write this book was I just thought Stalinism to, to some extent and Nazism to a large extent was just completely misunderstood. And I think uh, there's this great book by Arno Mayer called Why Did the Heavens Not Darken? And I, part of what got me writing this book was reading that book. And it's just an account. It's a long book, but it's one of the best accounts of of Nazism. And, and, and one of the things he points out is the first concentration camps were built for communists, right? They were built for, for, for political prisoners and, and prisoners that insisted on universality. And that was the enemy for Nazism. So that was a big, so that, that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to reinterpret that entire movement and, and not, not say like Nazism wants to wipe out particularity, but that it wants to assert particularity. And that's what makes it so, that's why it's evil, right? Like that's why, and the other, I mean, but I just used the term that I, I, I have actually, part of the things that I, the thing that I'm critiquing in the book is the way in which Nazism 
gets identified with pure evil and loses its political bearing. I think this is one of the great disasters of the last, you know, hundred years politically. And I, I think, you know, the, my favorite culprit for this is Steven Spielberg, who constantly just Nazis are just bad. They're just evil. They're villains. And I, I just think that's a perfect way to strip the politics of of them out. And that's why people can now say it doesn't matter. Like figures on the right or left can be thought of as Nazis. And and I'm, that just is confusing to me. Like there's a it seems like there's a perfectly good insult for right-wingers to launch at left-wingers, which is you're a Stalinist, right? Like you can't, you won't get to call them Nazis because that's a right-wing position. Anyway, that's just my, my own idea. Yeah. Or my, yeah. that's, that is my idea. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Um, well, this next question is moving to, I guess, um, more of the capitalism um, that you talk about in the book. So like one of the things that you talk about is, a structuring principle of society. And you argue that the commodity form is the contemporary capitalist structuring principle. And to quote something I found striking, you say, uh, begin quote, the more one pursues one's private self-interest with no regard for any other considerations, the more one acts as a puppet of the commodity form, end quote. So, can you unpack for us what do you mean by structuring principle and why is it significant that the commodity form is capitalism's structuring principle? Okay, so for me, the commodity form has a definite meaning and it means this, that you invest in it, you get more back. So it can be more money, it can be more enjoyment. And so that's why if I buy, a say, a new, whatever, Lexus, then I'm going to, I'll get this surplus of enjoyment back from the Lexus. Of course, I'd never get it, right? So instead the Lexus breaks down and I'm, 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 or I run out of gas or something, or it's not even, it's crap, whatever. It doesn't help. Uh, so there's the, the, the promise is always broken, but there's always the promise in the commodity form. I invest on the stock market. I, the, again, the promise is more capital back for my investment. So that my idea is that that form structures society so that capitalist society is structured on this promise of more. The problem is that it empties out uh, subjectivity. It causes this blank particularity to dominate. And then, so then my idea is that that actually, it functions as a kind of uh, breeding ground for, uh, for identity politics. So that, so that I'm, in the in the blankness of capitalist subjectivity, the blankness of the particularity of capitalist subjectivity, I'm constantly seeking. I mean, I don't think this is true of the people that are really invested in success, right? Like people that are working on Wall Street. I don't think they're actually typically victims of the call for identity politics because they feel they're if you're invested in that constant accumulation and you're getting some kind of payback from it, I think it that that it maybe is enough. But for the people that are not winning in the capitalist game, then I think identity politics fills out that subjectivity in a way that kind of makes up for that betrayal of the con constant betrayal of the promise within capitalism. So I think that there's, it's interesting how I would say capitalism produces identity politics because of this emptiness of capitalist subjectivity, which is tied to commodity form. 
Right. Well, and that segues into my next question about identity politics. So regarding how capitalism leaves us as emptied out subjects, not to mention a whole host of other problems that capitalism brings, one might think, as Karl Marx thought, that the working class would rise up in revolution against capitalism. So can you explain for us what role you see identity politics playing in preventing successful efforts to attack capitalism? I think it is the the preventative. Yeah. yeah, 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 absolutely. Like I think that you find you, me, I find solace in my identity and then I don't feel the need to revolt, right? Like I, I, I that, that identity f- fills out, like Marx thought when he, that famous line, end of communist manifesto, workers of all countries unite, you have nothing to lose but your chains. Well, it turns out, wait, no, I have something else to lose. That is my identity, right? Like that if I revolt against capitalism, I lose this identity that's making up for this blankness of capitalist subjectivity. So that I think that has played the fundamental role. I mean, like 1920s and early 30s Germany, the struggle between communism and, and incipient Nazism, it seems like right there you can see that being played out in which position was more attractive? Well, the position of identity politics, because if you're a communist, you don't get, you don't get the, the reward of identity that communism in at least the way I understand it, it's, it, it, it's universality comes at the expense of, of, of the solace of identity. And so that's not, that's, that's one thing that fascism has that communism didn't have. So I think that that's played the fundamental role much more than like consumerism or all these other things in, in offsetting any possible revolt against capitalist society. Right. Well, and just touching on some of what you said, um, like one of the things you say in your book is that, quote, we enjoy our identities. This is why ideological interpolation into an identity works. We accept ideological manipulation due to the enjoyment benefit we receive from it, end quote. So how and why do we enjoy our identities? Right. So identity gives us, so on the one hand, it it gives us a symbolic position to occupy, right? So in that sense, there's no enjoyment attached to it. It just gives us a point at which we're recognized within the symbolic structure. But it also gives us a point at which we're opposed to someone else. This is ties to what I was talking about before, where to, to feel like I belong, I need someone else that doesn't belong. And that's that figure of non-belonging is what makes my interpolation into a certain identity enjoyable. So I take on an identity. Why does it become enjoyable? Because there's someone else on the outside who I can manifest my hatred toward, right? Or, or I can, I can, I can feel above that person. And so that to me is where the enjoyment of identity lies. It lies in relation to those who don't belong to my identity, which is why, and then the project then is usually either to what, to wipe them out or to oppress them, right? Like do so. And the problem is that the more that you wipe them out, the more that you destroy the thing that makes your identity enjoyable. Yeah. So it's a, it's a kind of a loser's game, I think, to the, that project of identity, identity politics. Right. And can you connect? Um, I mean, I guess, 
you've already touched on this, but like how identity, like what does that have to do with ideology? Yeah. So I think ideology, it's interesting because on the one hand, ideology today interpolates, interpolates us. This is a term from Louis Althusser, the great Marxist thinker who wrote an essay called Ideology and Ideological State Apparatuses. And that he, he doesn't coin the term, but he basically makes the term current of ideological interpolation, which means you're brought into a certain uh, ideological identity or, or mode of subjectivity. So I think that one way ca- uh, ideology functions today is it makes us capitalist subjects. So it makes, it puts, it imposes this commodity form on our the structure of subjectivity. But I think it also, there's a second operation of ideology that gives us a specific identity, a particular identity within the society. So whatever that might be, like, uh, I don't know, like a uh, gay man, white person, like all these things, right? Like whatever that, whatever that particular identity is, I'm also interpolated into that. And that, so whereas capitalist subjectivity is just this particular blankness, identity when I'm interpolated as an identity, I have a content to my, to my identity. And that's, so that's, a, those are two different modes, I think, of contemporary ideological interpolation. Right. Yeah. Well, as we've already seen, you argue that the struggle between left and right is the struggle between the universal and the particular. However, you point out that a challenge in today's time is that often what's labeled as identity politics is actually universalist in aim, and that many projects calling for unity are actually particularist. Um, you probably, I think you already have mentioned a couple examples, but um, could you see like what are some of the important ways you see that happening in society today? Yeah, again, like the, to me, the the best example of this is the Black Lives Matter movement, where uh, it clearly was universalist. But it's interesting, right? Like people, you know, and then and then I think what's interesting is the contrary to it. This this all lives matter. I don't mean you call it a movement. I don't know what it was. Uh, seems to be universalist because it says all. It's isn't it talking about everyone? It's inclusive blah, 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 blah. But my point is, no, actually, if you look at it, the structure is exactly the opposite, that it's Black Lives Matter that's universalist because it's paying attention to what's excluded from or this figure of non-belonging in the social order, Blackness. And then All Lives Matter, which just ignores that figure altogether. And thus, all lives matter is really another way of saying white lives matter, right? Like it's really a way of saying all that matters is this particular identity and anything that doesn't fit in that particular, it's not part of the all. So that to me is a perfect example of the way in which the signification is totally reversed, right? Like what seems to be universal in terms of its, its name all lives matter actually is the particular struggle. And what seems to be particular black lives matter is actually universal in its struggle. So that to me is the real, that, that it just encapsulates really nicely. I think what's at stake in the, in the struggle, but I think you could think of other ones, right? Like, um, you, you know, Fridays for future would be another to me, universalist struggle. And one of the way, I think one of the ways, you know, 
that a struggle is universalist is that anyone can be a part of it, right? Like what I love about the Black Lives Matter, it's kind of similar to the the Haitian Revolution. The Black Lives Matter protesters would say to the cops, just come kneel down beside us, right? Like kneel down along with us. You're part, you can be part of us too. So it's not, and that's, I think, where you see the universalist dimension. Same thing with Fridays for Future. They're not, you know, they're opposing their elders, but they're not, they're, they're allowing their elders. They're saying, come on, join Fridays for Future, be part of us. Uh, so I think that that's, to me, that's a real, whereas uh, a particular struggle always needs its enemy to stay external, right? Like you couldn't imagine, uh, you know, like a alternative for Deutschland can't say, oh, immigrants, come join our party. Like it would be absurd, right? Like the part, it would no longer have any sense. So that's, that, that, that to me is a, one of the nice ways where you can really see the, the different bearings of the two. Right. Well, my last question or second last question um, is one of the things you talk in your book about is how disaster films induce a turning away from particular concerns to universal concerns. And you also point out that the climate crisis is universal because it marks an absence in all social orders, a point of inability to master. So this book was published right at the onset of COVID-19. I'm wondering if you could give us your take on ways you've seen universality discovered amidst the pandemic, um, or if you've seen that, and what some pressing new fronts are for universality. Yeah, I mean, the the pandemic seems to me to be, to really have brought out this universalist struggle in a, in a very clear way. And, excuse me, like, I think that the, the opposition to any measures to try to contain it are, are, is always particularist, right? Like the, the anti-vax movement, the anti-mask movement, all these different, to me, like particularist identity politics movements. And I think that the attempt to say, I, what I really liked about the initial response to the pandemic was that the threat, that, and I, I like that the, the, I don't like this, but I like this in the politics of the response, that the fact that it was mostly a danger to the weakest and the most vulnerable of the society, and yet the whole society put a stop to the project of accumulation for a certain period of time to try to protect that group of people, that strikes me as just indicative of what the universalist project really is. So I... I, I I have to say that I was totally in favor of, I'm against, totally against Giorgio Agamben on this question of like, oh, this is about, uh, you know, imposition of state control. Or I, I, I think that's just nonsense. Like, I think that it really was this moment of an outbreak of universality. And, and I think that you could see the way in which the right wing pro-capitalist movements were all against any kind of mitigation efforts. So that seems to me to be really instructive. Uh, so that, that, that I, so just like a disaster film, I feel like the natural disaster of the plague also revealed the moment of universality, but, you know, it's also interesting to me the way that, uh, you know, just here in the U S Donald Trump constantly called it, he used this racist term, the Kung flu, uh, okay. you know, like <laughs> it's ridiculous. Um, but the point was to create an enemy 
instead of having a natural disaster, right? Like that, and and I think that's why the right it's constantly wants to create wars because that has the structure of friend and enemy, uh, you know, outside and or, or belonging, non-belonging. Uh, whereas I think the point of leftist struggle, like we see in the case of climate change, is that there can be no enemy and that we're all in it together. And so I think that COVID showed that, although then it, it sort of broke down, obviously, and there were all kinds of, I think the politics of it got very complicated now. And, you know, now I, I, I clearly think that uh, China's zero COVID policy is not like my idea of, of universality. So uh, anyway, so I, I think it, it became more complicated, but I think the initial response was a universalist one. Right. Great. Well, the last question I want to ask is what are some new things that you're working on? Uh, I just, so just this very, right before I got uh, started to talk to you, I, I finished proofreading a book of mine called The Racist Fantasy. So that's my, that's my project that I, I, I have coming up. And I also have a book called um, Enjoying Right and Left and, or Enjoyment Right and Left. I haven't decided. And that's going to kind of take up some of the ideas from this book and, and think about the opposition between right and left in terms of enjoyment. So in this book, I think about it in terms of universality and particular particularity. And then in that coming up book, I think about it in terms of uh, two different forms of enjoyment or different relationships to enjoyment. Great. Yeah. Well, we've taken up enough of your time, Todd. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Ruben, it was so great to be with you. Thanks for having me.